People make promises all the time, many of which they have every intention of keeping. But in the end, they lack the ability. From Herbert Hoover's promise right before the depression of a chicken in every pot, to Lyndon Johnson's pledge to win the war on poverty, from Nixon's promise to quickly end the Vietnam War, to George H.W. Bush's promise, read my lips, no new taxes, Sometimes circumstances become such that an individual may not be able to keep the pledge, no matter how well-intentioned they may be or may not be. With this in mind, this morning we consider the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 18, which constitute one unit in the Abrahamic narratives that make this very significant point. The Lord is able to keep his promises in spite of difficulties and barriers. The Lord is able to keep his promise in spite of apparent difficulties and barriers. You see, it's one thing to make a promise and have every intention of keeping it, but it's another thing to have the ability to keep a promise. And God has the ability to keep his promises. Theologically, we call this ability omnipotence. If, by God's providence, you happen to catch Wednesday night's class on Ephesians chapter 3, some of this, this morning, will sound somewhat familiar to you. For Moses is making the same general point here in Genesis chapter 18 that Paul did in Ephesians chapter 3. To be omnipotent means that God can do whatever is intrinsically possible to do. God can do whatever it is intrinsically possible to do. Or, to put it another way, God can do what it is not impossible to do. His power is unlimited and uninhibited by anything else. One more time, God can do whatever it is intrinsically possible to do. Or, God can do what it is not impossible to do. His power is unlimited and uninhibited by anything else. Negatively, omnipotence does not mean that God can do what is contradictory. The scriptures affirm that God cannot contradict his own nature. Some skeptics like to bring up objections with regard to Christianity by saying, Oh, so your God is an all-powerful God. Yes, the God of the Bible is omnipotent. Oh, yes, he is. Well, then can God make a stone so heavy that he himself can't lift it? And people say, well, I don't know. So, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just told me that the God of the Bible is omnipotent, didn't you? That means he's all-powerful, right? Well, that's true. That's what it means. So can God create a stone that's so powerful he can't lift it? And we scratch our heads. And they say, gotcha. Well, no, they don't got anything. You see, because that's contradictory. That's an absurdity. That's a logical absurdity. And God doesn't deal in logical absurdities. So we, 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 have, to, we have to fire back at the skeptic. We don't, we don't let them have that point. Because we love them, we don't, we don't let them have that point. Sometimes people say, well, if God's all-powerful, can God then create another God, just like himself? Well, no, because that's a logical absurdity. God himself is eternal. Can God sin? We will say, no, that means he's not omnipotent, right? Well, no, that doesn't mean he's not omnipotent, because God cannot contradict his own nature. That's why we started off, and I saw some, a bunch of eyebrows go up, and I'm glad they did, because it means you're listening, when we said God can do all that it is intrinsically possible to do. 
but he's not going to do something that's intrinsically, logically inconsistent or logically absurd. He doesn't do that. If we were to say, can God, can God cause something to be and not to be in the same sense at the same time? No, the answer is no, because that's logically contradictory. When people ask such questions as those, they're really trying to avoid the issue. At least that's been my experience. They're really trying to avoid the issue, so answer it, have a ready answer for them, and then love them enough to follow up and give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they really mean. Now, omnipotence does not mean that God must do all he can do. It doesn't mean that God must do all he can do. It simply means that he has the power to do whatever is intrinsically possible even if he chooses not to do some things. Now, God must know all that he knows. That's going to be part of our passage this morning, too. Very briefly, though, omniscience. He must know all that he knows, but he doesn't have to do all that he can do. And I hope you see the fine theological point in that difference there. God is free, then, to limit the use of his power. But he's not free to to limit the extent of his power. We see this with Jesus and the Incarnation. Jesus was just as omnipotent in this hypostatic union as he was before the Incarnation. But he voluntarily limited the independent use of his divine attributes for our benefit, for the Father's plan. That's called the doctrine of kenosis in theology. He voluntarily limited his omnipotence. But it didn't mean, because he limited his omnipotence, it didn't mean that he wasn't still omnipotent. Now, these might seem like things that are duh items to us, but they haven't been duh items over the history of the course of the history of the church. People have argued about these. They've fought about these. Churches have been split up over things like these. Denominations have been formed over issues just like what we're talking about right here. And we may think that they're real, real simple, and I think that they are. But I want you to know, people have fought over these things in the past. Jesus Christ was undiminished deity meaning he had unlimited power even if he chose not to use it. We get a hint of that at the cross, don't we? A hint of it, because Jesus says, I could, I could call 10,000 legions of angels to help me out if I wanted to. And actually, he wouldn't have even had to do that. Would he just by the word of his mouth? He could have ended everything there. But he didn't, at least not then. The meek, mild Jesus will come again, and then with the word of his mouth, he will slay all of his enemies, which is going to shock people terribly. Sometimes people short-sell Jesus quite a bit. Now, God must know all that he knows. Omniscience can't be limited. But God doesn't have to do all that he can do. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. In Psalm 135, the psalmist again said, The Lord does whatever pleases him in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all their depths. In other words, there's no place that God doesn't do all that he desires to do. Isaiah declared to the Lord, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who will reverse it? In Isaiah 43, Jeremiah, the prophet, added, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah chapter 49, God asked, Who is like me? Who can challenge me? It's a rhetorical question that demands that no one answer. And Jesus' testimony in Luke chapter 18, verse 27 reads, What is impossible with men is possible with God. The actions of God imply omnipotence. Beginning with creation out of nothing. That's one one thing that science can't handle. 
science, creation out of nothing. They can, they can explain God's creation. And by the way, science is a good thing. Science isn't a bad thing. Sometimes scientists become atheists and try to push that, and that's a bad thing. But you know what science really is? We need Christian scientists. We need young, younger people going through high school and college to become Christian scientists because science at its core is discovering and appreciating truths about God's creation. Wonderful and incredible truths. Christian, Christianity is not anti-science. We're very pro-science because science, when it's doing its job and has throughout the centuries, marvels at what they discover, realizing that there had to be somebody that, that put all these laws into place. And the greatest scientists that have ever lived have recognized the, the necessity for some being, some intelligent being outside of this universe to have put this universe into place. The greatest scientists of all time have done that. So we're not anti-science. We're very much pro-science, and that's what science does, discovers these incredible things like creation after it has been created. God created out of something out of nothing, and then he moved on to, and to, to do numerous, numerous miracles over the course of human history, things that acted outside of the so-called laws of nature. So the actions of God imply his omnipotence. Now, a couple more real technical theological things, but they're very, very important, and then we need to move on to how this applies to our passage today. Omnipotence, God's omnipotence, flows from his pure actuality. Now, pure actuality is a $100 theological term. Maybe you might say it's a $1,000 theological term. But pure actuality means that God has no potentiality. None whatsoever. There is no potential in God. Now, if you were to come up to me after the service today, say, after hearing that sermon today, I think you have no potential whatsoever. <laughs> then, then I'd probably get my feelings hurt over something like that, and I, I would be upset all the way home, because it, you would have intended that as an insult. But if we were to say of God, God has no potential. And God, was, and God was to hear that, and certainly he does. He would say, that's right, I have no potential whatsoever. Because everything that I am, I am to the degree of perfection. See, God can't be any more powerful than he already is. So when it comes to God's potential, we can say, can he be potentially more powerful? No, he can't. Because you, if once you're omni-something, you know, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, once you're, once you're omni-something, there's no more potential there. So if God is powerful and he's pure actuality, and he is, then there's no room for improvement, which means he's omnipotent. Its cousin is infinity. Omnipotence also flows from infinity. God is an infinite being. God possesses power, as we have spoken of already, by his mighty acts. So whatever God has, that is, whatever he is, he is to the degree of infinity. Can he be any more loving than he already is? No. He can't be any more loving. It's not like he's holding something back. It's not like he has something, some potential for the future that he could be more powerful, more, more intelligent, more knowing. That there's somewhere he hasn't been that he could then someday be. No. God's omnipotence flows from his infinity. If he's powerful, he must be infinitely powerful. Now, omnipotence is not just a dry theological doctrine. It is comforting. It's encouraging. It's a, pardon the pun, a powerful doctrine. God's predictions and God's promises to any of us are no better than his ability to keep them. You see, that was one of the problems with the gods of the Greeks. They had, they had potential. They could have gotten better. 
And it's my understanding that with, with regard to some of the Greek philosophers, that's the problem they had with their own gods, that they were never really big enough to do what it is they needed them to do. The Greek gods were more like superhuman beings and not like deities, not like true deities. Our God is ultimately, awesomely omnipotent. And that means if he's promised you something, then he is perfectly capable, he has the ability to fulfill that promise. Now, some people like to say, well, God is good, but because we see evil in the world, that he must be good, he must want something good to happen, but he's not, he lacks the omnipotence, he lacks the power to make it all happen. Well, no. God is, God is good, and he has the ability to accomplish his will. And that's very comforting to me, because God has promised me many things, but one thing he's promised me, well, the scriptures say it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should, get this, never perish but have everlasting life. Now, I'm counting on that one. I'm counting on that, and so are you, or you wouldn't be here today. I'm counting on a God that's powerful enough that once I die, he's going to be able to keep his promise. You know, Satan, the archenemy of the believer, is very powerful, but he's not omnipotent. We don't have to, be, we don't have to concern ourselves with this silly, silly possibility that we would get to heaven and then Satan says, no, no, I want that one. I want that one. God said, no, you can't have that one. He's mine. And the God of the universe, the one who created this universe, the God of Christianity, is all-powerful, and he, he can pluck you from the fire. He's never going to let you go. I remember seeing this film one time. It has Sylvester Stallone. Forgive me for watching a Sylvester Stallone film, but I kind of like him. I forgot the name. I had to do something with Cliff or Cliffhangers. And the first scene in that movie, for goodness sakes, if that didn't get your heart racing. You know, he's, he's got his hand over the cliff and he's holding on to this person. And you just wonder, is he going to be able to do it? Is he going to be able to save that person, rescue that person? And his arm is bulging with muscles. And you know he's strong from a human perspective. Doesn't quite work out. I won't spoil the movie, but it doesn't quite work out how Sylvester wanted it to work out. But you know what? God's got you in his grip. And nobody or no thing is going to be able to pluck you from that grip. You see, the omnipotence of God secures you forever. An omnipotent God is not going to let you get away. Once you're his, you're his. Oh, it's a very, very comforting doctrine. He is all-powerful. He is all-good. What God promised Abraham far back, weeks ago in our study, maybe a few months ago in our study, years ago in Abraham's life, but what God promised Abraham seemed from a human perspective to be impossible. He promised that he would be blessed, he would have seed, there was certain land that he would achieve. But the, the, the seed part, the fact that his wife would have a child, that seemed humanly impossible to him. For when we very first meet Sarai, in Genesis chapter 11, we find out she's barren. And that's 25 years before the time that, that we are now, and things aren't getting any better for her. She can't bear a child when the narrative starts. But God seems throughout this narrative to expect Abraham to expect a child through his wife, Every, every idea he comes up with to try to go some other way and go around God doesn't seem to work out. But it does seem somewhat impossible. It's not contradictory. 
that Sarah or Sarai would have a child. It's not contradictory. It's not a logical absurdity. But it did fall outside the accepted boundaries of the so-called laws of nature. It did fall outside of that. Now, just because something falls outside the laws of nature doesn't mean it's contradictory. I hope you, hope you understand that. We're talking about logical contradictions. This is not a logical contradiction. Now, read with me, if you've had time to open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 18. Read with me the first 15 verses. This is this one singular unit that we'll cover this morning. Now, the Lord appeared to him, this is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do, as you have said. Verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. By the way, if it was just an ordinary visitor, Abraham wouldn't have got a choice calf. It would have been a goat or something like that. But he, he goes and gets the best he has. In verse 8, and he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Verse 9, and they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Verse 12, And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Verse 14, probably the key verse in the chapter, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. The narrative here opens with Abraham being blessed with a divine visitation. Now, we know it. It appears as though Abraham knows it, although we don't know exactly how Abraham knew that this was a divine visitation. But you can see the verbs here, and you can see the intensity of Abraham's welcoming these people with hospitality. He knows at least very quickly that the people he's entertaining are not ordinary people. We know it, and we know it from the beginning, but Abraham figures it out fairly quickly. Here's a patriarch. Here's a man who's very powerful in his time, not as powerful as he would be at one point. But as soon as he sees these three men, he ran from the tent door, met them, and bowed himself to them. We see by the the, the fact that he is in a big hurry to offer them hospitality that he considers these to be important visitors. Sometimes people will say, well, this chapter is primarily about hospitality, a comparison between the hospitality of Abraham in this chapter and the lack of hospitality that they receive in Sodom in the next chapter. And certainly, hospitality is an important thing in the ancient world, or was an important thing in the ancient world. In fact, hospitality probably was more significant, more important 
throughout the entirety of the history of humanity until relatively recently. We've got hotels, motels on almost every corner now, restaurants in abundance. That wasn't the way it was until relatively recently in human history. But the three men turned out to be, one of them turns out to be the Lord himself, the angel, the Lord, the Lord himself, and then two angels. The other two are angels. The group comes to Abraham to bring him revelation. So while it's set in the context of the importance of hospitality, there's more to it than just simply Abraham showing there hospitality. But maybe this, maybe just maybe this is what the writer to the Hebrews was referring to when he said, be careful who you entertain. Be nice to everybody because you just might be entertaining an angel. This may very well have been the reference to that, that very difficult passage. Abraham is living in Hebron at this point, and the reference to Mamre calls our attention back to the previous discussion we had with Lot, the situation with Lot. The sudden appearance of the visitors in the heat of the day may have been one of the things that clued Abraham that these are no ordinary visitors, and he treats them with incredible hospitality. The expectation of hospitality was great in the ancient world, perhaps even more so than it is in, in recent history. Travelers were weary when they would come. There wasn't a Ramada Inn or Hotel uh, or a Holiday Inn Hotel or any of these kind of things. There wasn't any international house of pancakes that they could stop and get breakfast. They were dependent upon the kindness of others, and it's a hot country there. And when, when the text says in the heat of the day, it means it was pretty warm in Israel at that time. Those of you that have been to Israel know how hot it can actually be. But there is some question as to Abraham. Does, does he know who he's entertaining? It's a million-dollar question, but his actions, I think, betray the fact that he figures it out right away. These, these men apparently just appear on the scene. Nobody sees them coming. There's no warning to let Abraham know that, they, hey, you got some visitors coming. All of a sudden, they're just there. They're there in the heat of the day, and Abraham certainly knows that something was something is up here. Sharing a meal together is the peak of hospitality. That's, there's levels of hospitality that are shown even today. Someone could have just said, "Hey, listen, if you're if you're passing through here, go ahead and feel free to get you some cool water at the well. Park your donkey up underneath that tree there, and and want you rest till it gets a little cooler." That's one level of hospitality. But Abraham goes way beyond that because I think that he senses that something big's happened. It's also interesting to me that even in our time, the, the function of eating a meal often has a softening influence when people are going to discuss tense things. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes businessmen will schedule a tense meeting around a meal knowing that it, the tension may be ratcheted down just a knot if we're sharing a biscuit together. And this is going to happen here. Abraham is going to share a meal. Actually, he's going to cook a meal for them. The discussion will take place around the meal. There is significance, then, to the Lord making a special visit to Abraham's tent. He is going to use this occasion to specify the specifics of the birth of Isaac to Sarah. Now, by verse 9, there's no doubt as to the identity of the visitors. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent... The question that is asked there is rhetorical, of course. The visitor knows Sarah's name. Nothing in the text that they'd been introduced. Certainly they would have known that Abraham had a wife. But the question is a bit rhetorical. Where's Sarah, your wife? It would be like if two Jehovah Witnesses came to my door and we're sitting talking and they said, where's Cindy, your wife? 
I said, how do you know Cindy? No, we don't know her. We just, we just got here. I, I would wonder how they got that information. But th- it, there's a hint there that these are very, very special people. The dialogue that's going to take place here concerns Sarah's role in the outworking of the promise of God. But there are some things in this dialogue that aren't culturally correct. They aren't culturally political, politically correct. So let me go ahead and get this out of the way at this point. And um, that will give me, well, I, it's early enough in the sermon while I still have energy to, to dodge whatever may be <laughs> thrown this direction. Even though this dialogue is primarily about Sarah's role, the dialogue is going to take place by and large between the Lord and Abraham about Sarah. She's listening in. Actually, Sarah doesn't come in with any kind of direct uh, dialogue until the very, very end of the narrative. This is about Abraham and Sarah, but the Lord is speaking to Abraham about his wife. Now, again, that's, that's not really culturally correct today, but that's the way the Lord did it. So may I, with all the love of Christ, say maybe we ought to get over that instead of trying to change the text around to... Uh, that's just what he did. He considered Abraham to be the head of the family. The promise was originally made to Abraham, so he talks to Abraham about it. It, it, doesn't, it's, it, it means no offense to, to Sarah whatsoever, but that's the way that it was done in this text. So the conversation is going to go through him. It's interesting, too, the second thing, and this is quoted in the New Testament, yes, Sarah calls Abraham Lord. Now, she's not calling him deity, <laughs> This is just a term of respect. It doesn't mean that you have to, the application is not, you have to go home this evening and and call him Lord. I'm not saying you have to do that. Uh, But it it does show the the respect that Sarah had for her husband. And she is praised in the New Testament for that. It's better than some of the stuff you probably called him before. I can see that. But it wouldn't hurt, but, but you don't have to do that. Now, Verses 9 through 15. I can tell you that that was a sore spot with some of you. (laughs) It is in some of the commentaries too, so that's why I thought I'd get it off the table right now. The promise is specific. By this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. When this is spoken, Sarah laughs within herself. And we can sympathize with her, I think. Actually, we can sympathize with the description that she gives of herself In verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. She's past the menopause. Now listen, if you know anything about human physiology, and guess what they did back then, we didn't just discover things like this in the 20th century. They knew all about that. In her mind, it's physiologically impossible for her to have a child. So we can, the Lord doesn't excuse it, but I can understand why? She's chuckling to herself. She's also a rather great woman. She's, when, when people can laugh at themselves, you know they don't think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Sarah is actually laughing at herself a little bit here as well. She laughed to herself saying, after I have become old. Actually, that could be understood or translated, after I have become worn out. I'm worn out, Lord. And, and now the text would be too kind to put it that way. I'm worn out. And I'm supposed to have pleasure through this activity? Now, she's probably talking about two things. First, what you might be thinking, she's talking about the, the pleasure of the, of the episode itself. 
But she's also talking about the pleasure that would be hers to rear a child of her own at that advanced age. And she's saying, I'm all worn out. And, and this is going to happen to me? Actually, she's, she's poking fun at herself here just a bit. Sarah was actually a great woman in many, many ways. We don't give her the credit that we should, and we can sympathize with her. What, what she's faced with is a situation that, humanly speaking, is impossible. I understand. I've done a lot worse, and so have you, in terms of doubting God with things that weren't impossible. This is humanly impossible, but she, she chuckles. She chuckles to herself. The pleasure is not what she would have expected at that time under the situations physiological that she finds herself. Now, her, her laughter does reflect doubt. There's no question about that. The Lord's going to issue a, a rebuke to her for this. In the previous chapter, we saw Abraham and his laughter. He falls on his face and laughs. And we discussed the different possibilities for Abraham's laughter. God never rebukes Abraham for his laughter. And we discussed the possibilities there. Was this a laughter of incredible doubt, or was this a laughter just understanding the irony of the situation? Was it somewhere in between? And we concluded that perhaps it was something in between the two. Now, Sarah's laughter, though, does, does uh, it's just like, how is this possible? Look at me. How is this possible? Now, interestingly enough, we're going to see in chapter 20 that Sarah is still a, a very attractive woman. It's at least implied there. It's said earlier, but when we get to Abimelech in that narrative, Abimelech's going to take her because she's an attractive woman. So, so some of this may just be some sort of um, self-effacement that's going on with her. But her laughter reflects doubt. And so the Lord intervenes. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? So she drug Abraham into it as well. You mean, you mean he's going to be part of this as well, this old fellow? Well, yes, he is. The Lord said to Abraham, and notice, Sarah hasn't been spoken to yet. He's still talking to Abraham. Why does Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Now, actually, the Lord cleans it up a little bit. I think that's gentlemanly on his part. He doesn't go down that way and talk about her being so worn out or anything, not, not in the degree that she does. But can I have a child when I am so old? Now, here, verse 14, this is the key verse for interpretation and for application of this passage. And I'm going to tell you, this passage has incredible application to you and to me this morning. Because many of us are facing situations as we sit here right now, as you sit here right now. I know for a fact that many of you are facing situations that, from a human perspective, are absolutely impossible. But I want you to know that God is omnipotent. Is anything too difficult for him? The answer is no. Now, the Hebrew text could also read, is anything too marvelous for him? But the meaning of those, those two issues in the Hebrew text, especially when, the, when it's used elsewhere, is, is only minimal. So the translation that most of you have, is anything too difficult for you, is a legitimate rendering of the underlying Hebrew text. The answer is no. As long as it's not a logical absurdity. As long as it's not one of those things, can God create a rock so heavy he can't lift it? That's a logical absurdity. It's a nonsense question. We need to move past that. As long as it's not a logical absurdity, there is nothing too difficult for him. And it's not a logical absurdity for him to have Sarah have a child. Not at all. Is anything too difficult or too marvelous for the Lord? No, there's not. There's no degree of difficulty 
when it comes to anything that the Lord does. I love watching the Olympics. Sometimes the Winter Olympics, but especially the Summer Olympics. I like the running. I love the running. Um, but one thing I'm always intrigued about is the diving events. Because, you know, first of all, I don't like heights. And whenever I was a kid and we would go out on the high diving board, you know, I would go kind of close my eyes and then jump down, and it seemed like forever that you would fall. But these guys get on boards that are higher than that, and they do things that are absolutely incredible with their body on their way down. And they're graded or they're scored in two ways. One, they're scored on the how well they did the particular dive. And then they're scored based upon how well they did a particular dive and the degree of difficulty of the dive that they did. If they just do one of those ones where they just dive out and, and, and go into the water rather smoothly, they may do it in a perfect way, but their score won't be as high as someone else who did a more difficult dive. You've probably watched it too. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And they have this thing called the degree of difficulty of the maneuver that they have planned. And so sometimes some of them will purposely do things that are more difficult so their scores will be higher. But listen, with an omnipotent God, do you realize that there are no degrees of difficulty? Do you really believe that? It's the truth. And I want to tell you something. The same God that visited Abraham that day, it's the same God that hears your prayers at night. The same God that allowed Sarah to have a child when she's 90 is the same God that you're praying to to help your loved one with their cancer. It's the same God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is your God as well. It's the same God that Abraham prayed to that you pray to at night when you've lost your job. You can't figure out how you're going to make that car payment next week. It's the same God, the same omnipotent God, and it's, there is nothing too difficult for him. We study, most of us have studied God for so many years, I think we're almost, oh, it's almost like we get bored with it. The omnipotence of God is one of the most encouraging and exciting things that we can ever talk about. And it's the same God. There wasn't a God of the Old Testament, a God of the New Testament, a God of the Old Testament that did great and marvelous things that parted the seas, that gave children to those who couldn't have children that rescued the prophets from the hands of death, it's the same God that we worship. So when you open your thoughts this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow morning and you pray to this God, this God of the universe that loves you so much that he sent his son to die as a sacrifice for you, when you pray to that God, understand that you're praying for this, to the same God that's mentioned in this passage. And the same thing applies to the God you're praying to as is spoken in verse 14, is anything too difficult for him? The answer is no. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't have to do all that he can do. Sometimes he says, no, I'm not going to fulfill that promise. And you know what? I'm glad that he does that. Because not only is he omnipotent, but he's also omniscient, which means he has all the facts. He knows how every single action is going to play out throughout human history. We can see that sometimes. We can look back in our life and say, this was a critical moment. If I had not done that, then all these things wouldn't have happened. And I'll tell you, there were so many things that I have prayed for over the course of my life that I, I now look back and I say, thank you that you didn't answer that the way I wanted to. Matter of fact, there's a country western song that says, thank God for unanswered prayers. There's a lot of theology in that song. Because God knows better than me what is ultimately going to make me happy, what's going to fulfill his 
plan. So we can ask him, but we need to understand, not doubting, not doubting his ability. But he may choose not to do it. But when I ask him to heal my friend who has cancer, I know he can do it. Now, in his infinite wisdom, something I may never understand, he may choose to say, no, I'm not going to do that. But I trust him because he is also ultimately good. You know, he can't be any better than he is. Can I butcher it? He can't be any gooder than he already is. You put those two things together, he can't be any more loving than he already is. We can relax because of omnipotence. I have three kids. Most of you have heard that by now. Pray for them all the time. They, they occupy a lot of my prayer time. And I trust him that he loves them more than I do. I tell him that all the time. I remind him of that all the time. You know, Lord, you know, you love them more than me. And I know you're perfectly capable of taking care of them. I've never had this brought home to me more than when I've been overseas. My prayer life ratchets up significantly overseas. Why? I'm not exactly sure. But I will pray for you, I'll pray for my family in a, in a way that I hardly ever do. I, I, I pray for you here, but, but there's an intensity because, well, it first happened in, it first happened in Kazakhstan. I remember my boys were going to go on a camping trip with my brother and my nephew to Colorado. Well, knowing my brother and my nephew and how they like to have fun, I was a little concerned with my two boys. Well, it's a good thing I, I prayed for them because I found out part of the fun they had was one of them held David out the window by his foot as they were driving along the road. Just, and they, was, they had fun. They went along edges and looked over cliffs and, and all kind of, kind of things. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen, and I knew I wouldn't be there to do anything about it. You believe it, don't you? I knew there wouldn't be anything I could do about it. I prayed fervently. I had pastors from five different Shtan countries praying with me that these boys would make it through the camping trip. And they did, and it's the funnest thing that they've ever done, they tell me. They would like to do it again. But you know, I felt totally helpless because I wasn't in the United States. I couldn't do anything about it. But you know what? A few years ago, my daughter had an accident near our home that if it had been one, well, less than one second earlier, she would have been killed in the accident. And the accident was no more than 200 yards away from our front door. You know... That's when you realize your limitations. There's nothing I could do about that. But God can. God knows. He knows all about it. He has the ability to do whatever it is he chooses to do. And he loves us more deeply than we can possibly imagine. When you pray to him, understand he can do it. Trust him. But also trust him to know that he's going to do the very best thing for you. Never doubt that. Never die. Is anything too marvelous? Is anything too outside of his ability to accomplish? No. We can trust him. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is your God too. Same God, same power. At the appointed time, I will return to you. Now, there's, there's no indication that the Lord actually comes back. This is, this is I'm going to, there are different ways of understanding the idea of returning here. It doesn't mean he physically returned, but but there, the, the memory of this will be back. At this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Now, Sarah denies the laughter. I don't know how she um, intends to do that. The guy, the, the, the uh, 
the person that is speaking here knows her name and knows she laughed, even though she didn't do it outside, it would seem to me, just go ahead and fess up at this point. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I didn't laugh. No, 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 it wasn't me. For she was afraid. Well, yeah, I'd be afraid too. <laughs> so I do all that stuff. I'd be afraid too. She realizes who it is. And this, is, this isn't her best moment. I've said she's a wonderful woman. This, this part wasn't her absolute best moment, denying something that's an obvious truth. And the Lord himself just said, no, you laughed. You did. We worship an incredible God. We worship a God that's omnipotent, which means that God is able to do all that it is intrinsically possible to do. He's not bound by the so-called laws of nature. The only thing he can't do is something that's contradictory, something that would contradict his nature. He cannot sin, and he doesn't apologize for that, because that would contradict his holiness. And he's not going to get involved in logical absurdities. But God can do all that's intrinsically possible to do. He's not bound by the laws of nature. He created those laws. And he can interrupt them anytime he sees fit. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your God, my God, is able to keep his promises in spite of apparent difficulties or barriers. Heavenly Father, we are so privileged to call you our Father. When, when we bend our knee and realize that, that we are speaking to the very creator of the universe, we stand in awe. We, we, we don't hardly have words to express our reverent respect of you. Our Lord taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Set apart be your name. May your name be so special. And it is. And we respect you and we thank you. Father, we realize you're omnipotent, and there are many things that many people in this room today have that they, that they respectfully ask you. We trust you. We know, we believe that you are omnipotent, and that you can do that which you desire. We bring our desires before you, Father. We lay them at your feet, understanding that you love us more than anybody could ever possibly love us, to the degree of infinity, and you're going to do what's best for us. Help us rest in your omnipotence and your love. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.